0: We've been working our way through John, and we've been studying John in light of the reason for why it is written, and we closed John chapter 8 last week, and this week we are opening a new chapter of John, John chapter 9. It's a very different chapter than John chapter 8. John chapter 8, there's a lot of discourse, there's a lot of questions back and forth, a lot of things going on between Jesus and, and those who were becoming angrier and angrier with his ministry, and... and through John chapter 9, we're going to see something just a little bit different. And I wonder, was there ever a time in your life where you couldn't see? Where maybe you were temporarily blinded and you couldn't see. It actually happened to me once. I was at camp. It was, it was summertime. Things were winding down. And uh, we were at a, we, it was a retreat, and we had free time. And, and just so you know, if you've never been involved in student ministry before, free time is Satan's playground in, in, in student ministry. It really is. I mean, we, we got to the point when I was a youth pastor that we, st- we didn't have any free time. There was no free time. But back when I was young, you still had free time. And so we had free time, and we were in a cabin, and, and we were doing what kids do during free time, nothing productive at all. And one thing led to another, and things started getting chucked across the cabin. And it started innocently enough, started, you know, I think it was a shoe that went flying. Okay, not a big deal. A shoe goes flying, hits somebody, everybody laughs. One thing led to another, and um, did you ever see, you have the animal crackers. They're like that big. But did you ever see the iced animal crackers? They're a little bit bigger, right? The iced animal crackers. Next thing you know, iced animal crackers are being flung. All over this cabin. Just flung. Left. Right. Next thing you know, I have one in my eye. I literally got an iced animal cracker stuck in my eye. It happened. Girl flung it across the room. My eye was open. It went up under my eyelid. The iced animal cracker. And it was stuck under my eyelid. Half of it hanging out of my eye. And I, immediately your first reaction when something like that happens is is you got to get it out because it hurts. And so I ripped it out, but then I scratched my, scratched my eye, and I, and I couldn't see. And my head went down, and I closed both my eyes, and I couldn't see anything for a minute. And when I, I, you know, I was experimenting because I wanted to see how bad was I just injured that I covered the eye I could still see out of, and I realized I could not see anything out of my right eye, and I was terrified. I mean, imagine, I, I honestly thought I lost my sight. And, and I was so scared and, and I remember I was at the camp and I was going up, uh, up one of the back roads of the camp and, and whenever anything like this happened at camp, you knew there was always that one person that you had to go to. We had to go find Mama Z. Mama Z was going to fix it. She was going to make it okay. She was an RN. And I got up to her and she said, boy, she's like, I've never seen anything like this or heard of anything like this in all my years of, of being here at this camp. And, uh, and sure enough, I had some major trauma uh, to my eye. I had to, uh, as it began to heal, it looked like when you get up in the morning and you drive and your windows are all fogged and you can't really see out very well. That's what it looked like out of my eye for probably a month or more until it healed. And thankfully, it healed fully and I can see now. But I can tell you, being blinded, even temporarily, not being able to see, uh, is not fun. It was very terrifying. And perhaps some of you uh, in here. Uh, remember a moment like that. Now the event we're going to be looking at here in John chapter 9, it's only recounted in John's gospel at this place. And it's interesting, at the end of John 8, Jesus has hid himself from those who were seeking to stone him. And it's interesting to observe here that immediately after Jesus hides himself, what does he do? He gives a blind man sight to see. And many scholars believe that this event in the text, that it could have even happened on the same day that he hid himself. Perhaps even as he was leaving the city. And certainly the text would indicate that this event didn't happen long after they had picked up stones to stone Jesus. This chapter will continue the narrative of this growing hatred that we see towards jesus and it blooms all the way through john culminating with jesus's crucifixion and we're going to see friends that there is more going on here than just a blind man being healed what we're going to find today is that the testimony of this blind man is a testimony that is not foreign to many of us in the room today the lame have walked now the blind will see and as we explore this together, we'll further unpack this question of who is Jesus. Take your Bibles with me. Turn to John chapter 9, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, it's the account of the man who was blind from birth. Father, thank you for our time to gather together around your word Lord, we always come anticipating that you're going to work, that you're going to use it to produce something in our lives, some kind of fruit, Lord, that you're going to use your word to help us grow. We come to this activity every Sunday as a body of Christ. Lord, we do this together. We seek truth, Father. We know that you are the Father of truth. And Lord, we're praying this morning that you would give us light through the study of your word. Use it to help us grow, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Is it he? Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, And how were your eyes open? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. At the conclusion of John 8, we're left with this stunning reality of the blindness of the Jews towards Jesus. Their blindness of who Jesus was had caused him to to literally and physically hate him in a way that they were picking up stones to murder him. And, And the spiritual blindness that we see in John chapter 8 is immediately followed in John chapter 9 by an account of physical blindness. Jesus is passing by here at the beginning of our text. And there would be many times throughout his ministry where he passed by and when he passed by in those times people would make an attempt to see him remember the account of Zacchaeus Jesus is passing through a city he's passing by Zacchaeus wants to get up at a tree to get closer to see Jesus remember the, the woman who needed healing she wanted to get close to Jesus just to touch the hem of his garment as he passed by The official whose son was sick. Many would see Jesus pass by and attempt to come to him. But in this account, Jesus is passing by and sees a man with great need. Great need. This man, he's he's born blind. The text is clear that he has been born this way. His blindness has always been with him. The text says blind from birth. Isn't it interesting, he does not call out to Jesus or even acknowledge the presence of Jesus. As a blind man, there's nothing he can do. He cannot see. He has but only one true thing, and that is great need. This is what he possesses. It's all that he possesses, great need. He's begging because he's unable to physically sustain himself Most likely unskilled, most likely unable to work, and for sure a societal cast-off. Begging at the gates of the city, trying to get alms from any who would pass. His presence in this text gives the people opportunity to feel good about themselves, the people who were living in the city. Give the poor blind man some alms. Take him a meal. How about a blanket to help keep him warm? He was present for their pity, but in this exact moment, friends, he's present by divine providence for a display of divine power. That is why he is here. And the disciples, they notice this man begging, they recognize that he is blind, and their question to Jesus is evidence of what the popular thought of the day was regarding suffering. Their question exposes their worldview regarding suffering, and as we sit here today, every one of us has a worldview regarding suffering. In their minds, and what was traditionally and popularly taught and understood in that time, was that if a person suffered, it was always a result of either their sin or their parent's sin. That's why the question was asked to Jesus and. it it probably came from teaching in the Old Testament. From the law, Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. And we find this popular thinking over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Remember the account of Job? Job's friends, right? With friends like that, who needs enemies, right? The ones that Job had. They weren't great friends, were they? One of his friends, Eliphaz, tells Job that he's suffering uh, because of something that he's done. Because he actually says this. Imagine if a friend came up to you and said this. Job... There's no end to your iniquities. That's what he said to him. What a great friend. I mean, sometimes we need friends like that. But I don't know about some of these guys. In Job's story, Eliaphaz then goes on to give examples. You don't give water to the weary. You've kept bread from the hungry. You sent widows away empty-handed. You crushed the arms of orphans. And because of all these things, Job, perhaps all of your sin is the reason That you are suffering. Friends, this was an idea that was pervasive amongst the Jews. To them, suffering was a direct result of one's sins or one's parents' sins. So the question from the disciples should not come as a surprise. They say, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the bigger question behind this, the one that That goes a little bit deeper that all of us have an understanding of that we want to unpack today a little bit is why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? And every once in a while you know how God works in our lives in a way that we can see his divine hand of sovereignty over the things that happen in our lives. I didn't plan it this way. It didn't work this way, but a number of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago, Pastor Tom came and he gave me a brochure and he said, hey, I'd like you to attend this seminar with me. It just so happened to be on Wednesday this week and it was a seminar on suffering and ministry. (laughs) And it was on Wednesday. And I was like, man, the Lord knew that today we were going to be in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12 and we were going to be unpacking the answer to the question of why we suffer." So I had an opportunity to attend that seminar. It was a privilege to sit with uh, Pastor Tom and Susan. There were some others from our congregation there as well. Pastor Stan Mullen was there. I got to reconnect with him. And the presenter actually stood, and he actually shared the five most common or popular reasons people believe that we suffer. And I want to unpack those with you. I want to start actually with number five and work our way back to number one. And this is from research that he's done over the years. The first reason he gave, or the fifth reason he gave, as to why people suffer is because evil exists. So Some of these have truth in them. So he said one of the reasons that people suffer is because evil exists. And that's true, friends. Many of us have seen this. We've seen evidence of it, evidence of the work of the evil one. And, and, and there's presence, of demonic activity, and all those kinds of things. That's real stuff, friends. There is a, a battle going on that we're not privy to. And Paul talks about our battle not being against flesh and blood. And he's right. And so because evil exists, there is suffering in the world, sure. There was a fourth reason. The fourth reason we we'll work back five to one. Because God is using our suffering to make us stronger in some way. And I thought that was interesting. And is there some truth to that? Absolutely. Friends, many of you sit in this room and and you can reflect on a time when you suffered and you remember and look back on how God used that suffering now in your life to help grow you in some significant way. Absolutely. There's a a reason there. Third, and this is what we see in our text this morning. Some people believe we suffer because of punishment for personal sins. This is the reason that the disciples believed in this particular instance. Now, now, again, sometimes we make decisions that cause suffering in our lives. Absolutely. Sometimes we make poor decisions that lead to seasons of suffering. No doubt. Sometimes, friends, and this is difficult, other people make poor decisions that lead to a season of suffering for us. And that's a reality. Number two, some people say we suffer because of the laws of nature. That's just the way it is in a world that's infected by sin. We're all going to suffer. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Absolutely. And now each of these have an element of reality to them, but I believe that all of them come to roost under the first and final one. And I would sum it up this way. There is, we suffer, but there is no suffering without purpose. We suffer according to God's predetermined and providential purposes for our lives. Yes, it's true, sometimes we suffer because of sin, ours or others. Evil exists, and as a result of evil, there's much suffering in this world. Oftentimes, we suffer because it is a consequence of living in a fallen world. It's true that God indeed does use our suffering to produce endurance. The Bible's clear about that, patience and other character traits in our lives. Ultimately, though, we should be reminded that our suffering is not without purpose. God is sovereign over all things. And the evidence of that is in our text this morning. He does not allow us to endure the pain and suffering that is such a part of this world system without purpose. And again, friends, I think it's evidence of a loving God that our suffering accomplishes something. He uses it. In this moment, at this particular time, In this opportunity, Jesus takes care to guide the disciples' understanding of suffering in this very direction. Jesus will broaden and even realign the disciples' understanding and perhaps even our understanding of why people suffer. Look down at verse 3. Look at what he says in verse 3. He's correcting the false thinking of the disciples. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, for all of us, could it be that our suffering is an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed in us? Could it be that the sovereign God of the universe had it planned from the beginning that this particular blind man would be born with this particular position and placed at this particular location at exactly this particular time for this particular work of Jesus to be displayed for the whole world to see so that thousands, hundreds of years later we would sit here talking about the miracle that was wrought by God in this account? The scriptures give us clarity, friends. We do not suffer without purpose. Paul says in Ephesians, our light and momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. It's one of my favorite verses to reflect on when I'm going through difficult times in my life, being reminded of that truth over and over again. This is temporal. This is light. This is momentary. But God is using it to prepare me for something future. It's also a great example of Jesus using His Word to broaden the understanding of the disciples' thinking, isn't it? When He teaches them in instances like this, uh, where they've misunderstood or misapplied the Old Testament Scriptures, it's like He's saying to them, there's more here. How often, as He said, you have heard it said, but I say. See, they didn't understand it broadly enough deeply enough. He's helping them. There's also more going on here. Jesus is going to move to make a curious statement here that guides us to even more relevant questions. Look down at verses four and five. This is two interesting verses here. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world now there's a lot of curious questions that come up in these two verses while it is day what does he mean night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world what about after he's in the world what's Jesus saying here is he speaking literally is he speaking figurative, figuratively is it a little bit of both when is it day when is it night What night is Jesus speaking of where no one will be able to work? And what about when Jesus says when he's no longer in the world, when he physically leaves the world, will he no longer be the light of the world? These are all great questions. They're magnificent questions that speak to the reality of the world that we live in. And together this morning, we want to unpack some of these. And to be honest, friends, the answers to many of these questions are in the first eight chapters that we've already studied together. First, what were the works of him who sent Jesus? Why He says, "Why I'm here, we must work the works of him who sent me. What were those works? John chapter 6. We go back to this over and over again. I feel like every week Jesus keeps bringing us back here. He's motivating true belief in God. The work of God is to regenerate man, leading him towards repentance and belief in Jesus, securing for us the gift of eternal life life this man would be physically healed from his blindness indeed a work of god but even more importantly as we work through this text we'll come to find later in john 9 that this man would also be born again regenerated from above the works of god here involve both physical healing and spiritual healing the disciples being apostles of jesus would have a special giftedness from god God would use many of these men to produce miraculous signs and wonders so that the Jews might believe and the early church might be established. That's how he would have used some of these men. Second question in the context of Jesus' teaching here, when is it day and when is it night? What day is Jesus speaking of and what night is Jesus speaking of? In verses 4 and 5. It's day when the Son of Man is on earth, serving as the light of the world. And we remember that John's Gospel is clear in the first eight chapters. Before Jesus came, the people were living in... What were the people living in before Jesus? Do you remember? Darkness. Yes. Yes. Before Jesus came, the people were living in darkness. And we remember the verdict explained in John chapter 3. Though the light of the world was present on earth, the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Night was coming, friends. Night is here now. Night came when Jesus' physical presence was removed from amongst the people. For those of us that know Jesus and have a personal relationship with Him, we walk in the light because He is the light of the world within us. And friends, we should be thankful of this. So what did Jesus mean when He said night was coming when no one can work? Because we do live in darkness now, can we not work the works of God anymore? The answer is no. We take great hope in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. Look at that. Not you were in darkness, for at one time you were darkness. And now you are light in who? In the Lord. Walk as children of light. His light, friends, is within us. The idea that Jesus is communicating here is that we have a very short amount of time here to work. Our lives, it says in the Bible, is like a vapor. Very short. And Jesus would be crucified. The disciples would be martyred. Mainly because we live in darkness and people didn't understand. They missed who Jesus was. Jesus is essentially saying to them here, listen, our time is short. I'm only going to be with you a little while longer. And when we're here together, we might as well get to work. Might as well get working. friends. our night is coming when we'll no longer be able to work here, when the Lord removes us physically from this earth. So while we're here together, let's press on for the glory of God. We gather together on Sunday mornings to encourage each other, to edify each other in the Word, to build one another up because He has us here in this place now physically in a place that's foreign to us, a place where we live as aliens, right? We need a little bit of encouragement. We need to be building one another up. Because why we're here, why the light of the Lord is shining within us, and He has us here on earth, He has a purpose for us. And we need to encourage one another, spur one another on to good works, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, encourage, lift one another up. I love the beginning of verse 4. There's a little two-letter word at the beginning of verse 4. Has anybody notice that word? Isn't it interesting that Jesus uses that word there? We. We. Jesus could do it himself. He's powerful enough. He's God. But but he doesn't do that. He uses the word we, and it's clear indication that Jesus is inviting his true disciples to participate in the work that God has given him to do. Emmanuel, God with us, doesn't mean that we don't get to participate, friends. Ephesians is clear. There are good works. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about good works which He has prepared for us in advance so that we may walk in them. Friends, for those of us who are true disciples of Jesus, who are walking in light as children of the light, we are called to work the works of God Together, one of the greatest pitfalls that I see in in communities, and, and I don't mean just in the church. I mean in communities in general, in teams. You, you see it in, in football. You see it on any team. You see it in any community. You see it at your job. Some of you, there's this mentality out there, and some of you have heard it defined as lone wolf mentality. Anybody know? Anybody know what that mentality is? The lone wolf mentality. You've heard of it. It's like I got this. I can do it. I don't need anyone's help. I'm okay. No, we're not. But He is. He is. And and so, friends, I I find it so dangerous. I've seen this in ministry before. Unfortunately, I've seen this in pastoral ministry with friends of mine who've served. We get to this place where we think that, that we've got it, we're okay. Friends, 16 years of full-time vocational ministry and every Sunday I get up in this pulpit, I still have butterflies. Every single Sunday. It's never easy and it never feels easy and I wake up every Sunday morning with what feels like 100 pounds on my back, on my shoulders. A burden that I have to unload, but you know, I can't do it. Jesus has to do it. And He calls us to depend on Him, to lean into Him, Not to go at it alone. And he shows us this reality by calling us, after salvation, calling us into community with each other. It's it's necessary, it's not optional, friends, the church. We're we're taken out of darkness and we're baptized into this community because we need each other. We need each other. There's people in my life, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church very much. I do Jesus, but I don't do organized religion. That's dangerous, friends. That we, we are is, is it always fun? It's not always fun. Do we hurt each other sometimes? Yeah, we do. That's a family, right? I mean, I watch that every day in my own home, right? <laughs> and we hurt each other sometimes. We say things we don't mean, all right? We throw toys at one another, hopefully not after a certain age, but when we're young. After a certain age, it's iced animal crackers. We chuck them around. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. Right? I mean, because I'll tell you when it's easy. It's easy when we're leaning and depending on God. That's when it's easy. It's hard when we think we got it and we can do it and we can go at this on our own. And friends, we got to be able to, to ask for help, to know that it's okay to need one another, to walk through difficult times together. That's what the church is about glorifying God by encouraging the brothers and sisters walking alongside of each other in Christ for the for the short time that we're here together on earth I have a I have a friend who he says to me I feel like he starts every conversation I'm not going to be here much longer so this is what I got for you I'm kind of like man you're like you're very morbid (laughs) you know he's not that old you know And uh, for the short, it just reminds me though, for the the short time that we're here on earth, we're here for a purpose. And we're here with the great purpose that God has placed us here for. So that we might love one another, and through loving one another, we're loving Him and growing in a greater love for Him. And in order for us to do that, we must live in community with one another. And I love it now in the text. If you look at verses 6 and 7, there's a transition here. Jesus is done. He's done dealing with the disciples' questions. I mean, it's good questions. Things that we want to talk about. You know, all all interesting stuff. But now what does he do? He turns his attention to the man in need. Right? Now look at this in verse 6 and 7. His attention focused now on this blind man. This man who was born blind. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now there's a pattern in Jesus' earthly ministry here. Oftentimes what we see is that Jesus sees a need. He answers questions pertaining to the need. He ministers to the need. Then he deals with the backlash and questions from the ministry that he gave And he hides. And we see that over and over again. Uh, It's a pattern repeated in John. But what is Jesus really doing here? This This is really amazing. And it wraps the New Testament, the Old Testament together so beautifully. It weaves it together. Many of us would be quick to say that he's healing this man. But how is he doing it? Truly incredible here. Every word that Jesus says is said with purpose. Every word. We've been studying John verse by verse. And we reflect back on John chapter 5, 19. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So yes, Jesus is healing this man. Absolutely, we see that in the text. But how is He doing it? How does it relate to this verse? Where do we see this truth earlier in the Bible? We know Jesus was with God in the beginning. John chapter 1. What did Jesus see God do in the beginning? Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Just as the Father formed man from the dust of the earth, so too does the Son here use the earth to heal this man who was born blind. The Son does everything that He saw the Father doing. And He's been with Him from the beginning he imitates the works of his father perfectly I also find it ironic here that the word Jesus is using water from his mouth in a combination with dirt from the ground to heal this man it's a beautiful picture of the incarnation the son of God kneeling down to earth using his words and his body To heal this man. And what are the two fundamental elements. That make up man. As we stand here with each other today. The two fundamental elements that make us up. Are dust and water. And from that which we've been made. Doesn't it make sense. That that's exactly what he uses. To heal this man. Perfectly. The same elements. And now just as. Just as Jesus has invited the disciples to participate in his ministry, he now instructs this man to participate in his own healing. He's not just going to do this, he could. We know this, he's done this before. We, We know that Jesus, right there on the spot, could have given this man sight. But that's not how he handles this. He invites this man to participate in his healing. Look at the clear instruction that he gives. And the clear obedience that follows. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So clear. Right? Not just any pool. Not any bit of water. Don't just go get some water out of the pot and put... No, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Very clear instruction. Very clear obedience. He went, he washed, and he came back seeing. Jesus clearly tells the man both what to do and where to go, and the man does exactly as he was commanded, and the result is his full physical healing. His sight is restored. Here's what's also striking in regards to this miracle. And this is for us, church. Jesus cleans this man up in the same manner that he cleans up his church. Ephesians chapter 5 Verses 25 and 26. Look at the elements here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did He love the church? He gave Himself up for her. Why? That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by what? Of water and word. Same thing, friends. He uses His words, saliva from His mouth water to clean this man up, it's the same way that he's sanctifying, purifying the church, the washing of the water and the Word. And the result of this encounter, the healing that this man experiences, the old is made new. The old is made new, and he's made new in such a way that he is unrecognizable. People don't even know who this guy is. Look at verse 8. The neighbor's. Well, we'll talk about the neighbors. The neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man that used to sit and beg? Some said, yes, it is he. Others said, no, he's like him. And he kept saying, not in a very arrogant way, I'm the man, you know. And he kept saying, I am that man. That's me. He didn't believe him. And so they said, well, then how are your eyes open?" And he told him exactly what Jesus did. And then they want to know where Jesus is. The neighbors see him first. You know, the neighbors see everything first, don't they? Isn't that just how it is? You know, uh, many of you already know by now, the word's getting out of the street, we, we're in the process of selling our home, we're moving about a half mile down the road. And uh, we had the sale, for sale sign out in, in, in the house. And the house is already sold, but you've got to keep the sign out after it sells. I don't know why. But uh, Sheila decided one morning she was going to go out and and mow, and so she took the sign out of the yard, and she mowed, but she didn't put the sign back in the yard. Guess what happened that night at football practice? The whole community knew. (laughs) The neighbors. What happened? Is your house still on the market? Did it sell? Are you not moving now? What's going on? The neighbors always know first. Just... (laughs) Just a warning, Just many of you know that. <laughs> what happened to that guy? Is that even the same man? It can't be. No way. May- maybe it is. Martha, look. Look what he's up to now. No, Elmer, I don't think that's the same guy. It looks like him, but it can't be him. <laughs> kind of reminds us of this verse, right? This whole healing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old blind man had passed away. He was no longer there. Behold, the new has come. And he kept saying, I am that man. It's me. I'm him. Completely transformed by the power of Jesus. He didn't even look like the same man. They're completely astounded. And an appropriate question follows their response. Look at what they, I mean, if you saw a man who had been healed in this way, you'd ask the same question. What happened? How how did this happen? How were your eyes opened? And his response is telling because it begins with the person who performed the healing. This man, Jesus. Jesus. Friends, our healing, whether it's physical healing, whether it's spiritual healing, our help, our hope, our comfort, they should always begin with Jesus. Our testimonies of coming from darkness to light in salvation, they should always begin with Jesus. I wish, friends, we'd just forget the past. Start with Jesus. This is what Jesus did for me. Retell Your story in light of the power of Jesus. I've heard some powerful testimonies in my days, but you know what's interesting about a lot of them? They always put a lot of emphasis on the past. The way that they were. Well, you know, that's that's not what we need to hold on to or even think about. Our testimonies are about what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus did for me. I once was blind, but now... I see the power of Jesus. The past, friends, fades into oblivion at the power of Jesus' name. Who we are is forgotten. It's forgotten. The light of the world takes His seat on the throne of our lives. Our ways dissipate. His ways take over. And who we are should come to be defined by who He is as we submit to the Lordship, His Lordship, over our lives. This man named Jesus, he made mud with his own spit. He put it on this blind man's eyes, told him to wash. He did exactly what Jesus said, and now he could see, period. The next question is a foreshadowing of what's to come through the rest of this chapter as we journey through it together. As often is the case in Jesus' ministry, His miracle, this miracle that He performs, this powerful miracle of giving this blind man sight, people aren't going to meet it with joy. They're not going to be excited about it, thrilled about it. Sure, the man who was blind is, but it's going to be met with disdain. And as we continue to travel through this chapter over the next few weeks, we're going to see the response of the people in light of this miracle and how they respond towards Jesus. So the question is, how might our lives look in light of these realities? And friends, I think we can all clearly see that this blind man is a lot like us before salvation. Though most of us were not born physically blind, at one point or another, every one of us in this room was spiritually blind spiritually blind and we only had one thing to contribute to our healing and we didn't even recognize probably that we had that and that was great need we had great need we needed to be healed that's what we brought we brought need and like the beggar at the city gates who was blind for those of us who sit in this room and enjoy a relationship with jesus christ he healed us of our blindness so that now we can see. This is amazing love. Jesus gives us sight. Our team is going to come this morning and lead us in a final song as we close our time together. Reflecting on the love of God in bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual power has Lord it just occurred to me that this could be for some in this room maybe the first day that they've received true sight Lord i pray that if you're opening eyes here today if you're changing and transforming hearts here today if you're drawing people into relationship with yourself here this morning that they would take a moment even now Lord and fall into a great dependence on you laying their life at your feet giving their own ways up in favor of your ways getting off the throne of their lives and placing you in your rightful place as Lord and Father, if that's happening this morning, that's cause for celebration. And so, Lord, if there are some in here this morning who, perhaps for the first time, have recognized you as a personal Lord and Savior of their life and have felt convicted to repent of their own sinful ways and fall down at your feet and worship you as Lord, Father, I pray that you would give them the courage and